Welcome to Media in Transition 7 on the MIT campus, where the world gathered to address a key question affecting all of us. Just how are we coping with the instability of media platforms? The conference was held in May 2011, and along with the academic contribution of hundreds of scholars and the insights of a dozen plenary speakers, the conference was made possible through the financial support of the MIT Communications Forum, Comparative Media Studies, Writing and Humanistic Studies, Literature at MIT, and the Technology and Culture Forum. And I'm glad to be moderating this panel on archives and cultural memory. The um, uh, ways in which uh, we will discuss this probably don't uh, relate very strongly to that uh, a big marble building in Citizen Kane where uh, you were only allowed to write in pencil. Everything you saw would be, uh, everything you wrote down would be checked and so on. But uh, to some of the other institutions, um, uh, analog and digital, that uh, help us to uh, recall what we've been through um, and uh, to the ways that uh, changes in platform and uh, shift to the digital era have affected our cultural memory. Um, before I introduce the panelists, I just want to mention one uh, way in which uh, my own work has tried to engage this question of unstable platforms, and that's through the Platform Studies series at MIT Press. The first book um, I did with Ian Bogust is about the Atari VCS, the Atari 2600, as a particular platform that facilitated uh, certain types of creative work. And uh, we have other books in the series coming on Nintendo's Wii and on the Amiga. Um, and this perspective on computational platforms specifically is one that uh, you know, certainly business people and developers have taken very seriously, and we're trying to bring that into the humanistic discussion of uh, broader sorts of platforms, communication platforms, and uh, the changes in media and changes in uh, cultural understanding and creativity um, that we've been seeing in uh, recent decades. Um, let me introduce uh, the uh, panelists we're glad to have uh, with us today uh, before we start in on some of the specific questions uh, about our cultural memory and uh, changing platforms. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, Frank Marchese, a professor of computer science at Pace University, is a founder and co-director of the Pace Digital Gallery. And Julian Nordegraaf is associate professor in Department of Media Studies at the University of Amsterdam. She directs there the preservation and presentation of the moving image program. And uh, Jason Rohde, Senior Program Officer in the Office of Digital Humanities, the ODH, at the National Endowment for the Humanities. And before joining the NEH, Jason was one of the founding employees of MIT, the Maryland Institute for Technology in the Humanities. Um, so we have a, a variety of perspectives um, on uh, different sorts of media and different sorts of institution that deal with you know, cultural heritage and cultural memory. And... Um, uh, I want to turn, um, we have a shorter period of time than we did in the plenary discussion, uh, so we'll uh, speak uh, here uh, for uh, a little bit a briefer time, have a conversation, and then try to open up to um, uh, the audience and see what, it's, what it is you'd like to um, uh, ask us about and engage with us on. Um, so <clears throat> I want to start with um, um, uh, a question that's uh, quite relevant to the state of the web generally, the so-called uh, you know, Web 2.0 uh, transformation uh, of the web, 
um, the involvement of uh, you know, companies in uh, new sorts of uh, social media, uh, gaming, the involvement of other systems like uh, Wikipedia, which aren't uh, corporate, that involve uh, collaboration and crowdsourcing. Um, th these are systems that, uh, and, and new ways of working on the web, that um, it seems are very strongly marked by, um, uh, in many cases, uh, the, their origin in startup companies such as, uh, such as Google, or Facebook, um, Amazon, um, and also in many other cases, massive participation um, across the web to produce knowledge in new ways. And we've had uh, uh, many great uh, uh, abstracts submitted and, and have had and will had have uh, some discussions on these topics. Um, but um, I think that these are things that aren't often very directly addressed in relation to questions of archiving and cultural memory because perhaps we do imagine that, that building in Citizen Kane, uh, which is an institution that isn't like Wikipedia, it isn't like a startup company. Um, and uh, of course we know that there's uh, pros and cons to both the uh, corporate involvement in the web and to the crowdsourcing uh, types of knowledge production uh, that, uh, uh, that have come along uh, in recent years. Um, uh, and they've been very transformative. Um, but do they serve the needs of um, allowing us to uh, remember the past, uh, think back, establish continuities, and build histories? So I want to start by opening up with that question um, to our, uh, our panelists here and, and seeing if there's some ways that those two threads of activity on the web uh, relate interestingly to cultural memory. Uh, for, first of all, I have to, like uh, Kathleen Fitzpatrick did yesterday, uh, sort of offer my, my caveat that uh, everything I say here is my own opinion and not that of the National Endowment for the Humanities. But, um, uh, but at NEH, we, we've actually received and, and funded a, a number of uh, applications interested in using crowdsourcing technologies for a variety of, of uh, arenas. Uh, there was a recent New York Times article on one we just funded on culinary history at the New York Public Library where where uh, they have these, these old historic menus. And so uh, folks are sort of sitting uh, down and, and uh, transcribing these menus, which are in a variety of fonts and styles. It's hard to OCR um, so that we can you know, make this machine readable and actionable. Um, we, we started, I think, one of our first uh, crowdsourcing kinds of uh, projects was called Ar Archive 2.0 out of Michigan State University. And, and this brought together uh, two distinct groups of users, uh, one, scholars who are interested in these uh, very specific uh, Samaritan texts, and then they were joined up with the communities, uh, uh, two specific communities in Israel, to sort of crowdsource between scholar and sort of practitioner or user, active user of these uh, historic manuscripts um, in order to talk about their different perspectives on these cultural heritage materials. Uh, another really interesting uh, project, uh, just to give you a sense of the scope, uh, Mary Flanagan uh, is, is developing a series of, of playable games to sort of crowdsource uh, tagging of archival materials uh, in order to make it a, you know, a, a bit of a game activity, but also sort of experiment with the kinds of tagging that we might do um, uh, for libraries or archives. And what, what differences there are between how a, a user sort of in a an enjoyable activity might tag something versus, say, a specifically an archivist. 
I mean, clearly, I think we all know um, that the kind of work that needs to be done on cultural heritage materials, uh, there's much more uh, out there than we have hands to do it. And so we have to find um, uh, interesting ways to, uh, to create uh, opportunities for both trained practitioners uh, and, uh, I, I guess, in the best sense of the word, the amateurs, to, to come together uh, and work uh, on these materials. I think... Um, you know, when we talk about Wikipedia, I mean, in many ways, Wikipedia is kind of an outlier in, in terms of success for crowdsourcing. Um, and, and, you know, I think we all know that Wikipedia, you know, you have a certain number of, of unique power users and you have uh, a lot of, as we heard in one of the talks yesterday, uh, bots and other mechanisms that allow uh, for, for Wikipedia to work successfully. So I think uh, just sort of as my, as my parting uh, uh, conclusion here, I, I would note that, that gathering the wisdom of crowds really is a, is a targeted activity. So there, there's a couple of problems. Uh, I, it, there's the field of dreams problem, which means that we cannot just build it and they will come. Um, and this is something that comes up in, in our review discussions oftentimes. Uh, in fact, you have to really have a very clear idea of the communities that you want to target or strategies for drawing people in. It could be that it's just a really fascinating topic. Uh, you already have, a, a, say, on Civil War materials, um, uh, a large community who, who might be interested in it. Uh, or you, you would target specific groups um, who, who have sort of other uh, interests in, in the project. But I think also, you know, how do you sustain it? Um, over time, because a lot of times crowdsourcing activities are very interesting in the first two weeks, uh, but maybe not so in the first two months or the, first, or, or the remaining two years. And then there's this final question that Nick uh, sort of uh, hinted at, which is one of authority. You know, one of the things we hear a lot about from uh, uh, folks who are engaged in these activities, uh, you know, librarians and archivists, is a concern of, of how the metadata that's being generated through crowdsourcing activities uh, interoperates, overrides, uh, conflicts with uh, the sort of seasoned and trained metadata that they've developed over time. And so I think those are... Uh, in, in the, I guess, perils uh, section or column uh, that I'll leave you with. Okay, well, that's a nice bridge to my take on this because um, I, in the beginning when I started researching these, these crowdsourcing initiatives for, uh, by audiovisual archives, uh, I'll present one case tomorrow, um, I, I was very skeptical about the last problem, that of authority, and how, because I'm interested in how these initiatives change the status of the archive as a gatekeeper of knowledge. And, well, by now I've been become uh, not so skeptical anymore because I, I think that what, what you see um, is that, um, well, on the one hand, it's, it's traditional institutions that uh, start up these initiatives, but what you see is that they also, the first implementations of these data um, show that they, that the museum finds ways of uh, visually separating these data from other uh, data, and uh, so they come become different types of sources of knowledge about the object, also with different types of interactions, for instance, not being able to mess with the official or the institution's uh, metadata, but... Um, uh, adding uh, 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 crosses to flag for deletion uh, for for the for the crowdsourced metadata, so making them uh, you know uh, uh, susceptible to rewriting and addition and uh, disambiguation, etc. Uh, so that's one one thing. And um, well, I think on the other side, what you also see is that that the arrival of these initiatives has 
also within the, say, archival field, changed our way, ways of thinking about uh, how stable these institutions are. Huh? This has been mentioned, of course, uh, yesterday in the, in the uh, opening as well. That, uh, and I, I'm, I think that what you see, what you basically see, is that this initiative also changed the way we see these uh, presumably stable archives as being not so stable uh, after all. And um, one point of concern, of course, is, is the memory of the content generated on these online platforms. The point you mentioned, uh, the commercial aspect. I mean, what is the incentive for these companies to, to archive? Um, that, I think, is a big question. Um, on the other hand, if you think about archiving in this online sphere, you could say, well, maybe this invites also a different way of thinking about preservation as an activity that's more dynamic and susceptible to, to rewriting, uh, to, to permanent rewriting. So it can also, again, change the way we think about what pres uh, preservation is. And, and again, how revolutionary is that idea in the context of archival history? Um, one of my colleagues in Amsterdam studied the uh, archives of the uh, Dutch Republic, um, how they were composed in, in the 16th, 17th century, and how in the 19th century they were completely reorganized because the view on what the Dutch Republic was changed. So the, the order of the archive had to change according to the new uh, perception of what the state was. So, so um, again, this, this, I, I don't see a revolution there. The one thing I, the one peril or the one thing I want to point to is the importance of tracing the changes. So in rewriting, in addition, this feature that you can track who did what when, that you can trace the changes that are made, I think that is the, the, the issue of digital source criticism for me is a very, very crucial one and one that we need better ideas on, on how to uh, safeguard them. Uh, well, one of the things I, I, I thought about with respect to the crowdsourcing and collaboration, it, it, particularly with respect to uh, wikis, is if you think about Wikipedia versus uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, in both, in both cases, you really are doing crowdsourcing, except that the Encyclopedia Britannica is doing it from a more institutional level, top-down approach, and the Wikipedia is doing it from bottom-up approach. Uh, in, in both cases, experts are putting their work out there, particularly if you're talking about the sciences, and, um, and there's a certain amount of vetting that's going on by the peers, so there's an enormous amount of peer review. Um, and, and usually the work that you see in the sciences is kept up to date, and uh, what's interesting about this is that you can deal with such issues such as um, this, 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 the timeliness or statefulness of these systems because Wiki's technology in itself provides uh, a set of processes which allow you to specify what the state of the information happens to be at any particular time. So if I were to access a Wiki, uh, and I wanted to find out what the state of the information was for September 12, uh, 2009. That wiki existed at the time. It could do that. So the technologies are available for doing these type of things. I think part of the issue is just making sure there's a sufficient amount of peer review and, and vetting of the individuals who put information out there. But I think it's kind of an evolutionary approach to the, to the idea of, of crowdsourcing because it's been done before in, collecting lar in creating collections of large and uh, a great deal of information. 
Well, thanks. I think there's a lot more to say about this. Uh, and if people have questions uh, when we come to that time, I you know, certainly would invite them. Uh, but I think we should move on to some of the other topics. Um, uh, and one of these, uh, so on, on the one hand, we're, we are confronted by new institutions. Uh, IBM has a corporate archivist. Uh, I don't know that Facebook has a corporate ar- archivist. I haven't found any, uh, any evidence of this online. Um, I think the startup companies that we're looking at that are, are producing things do have very different uh, uh, relationships to memory because they're, they're uh, impelled toward novelty and, and, and uh, innovation and, and doing things without uh, looking back or looking at past versions of themselves. Um, and yet um, there are systems, as Frank was pointing out, that uh, actually have a much richer record of their creation and past. I mean, Wikipedia offers this to us that we can go and look at um, in a way that we can't see uh, that isn't exposed with the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I'm wondering even if um, uh, this, this third question about um, uh, how it is that uh, traditional institutions that are focused on memory relate to those that are focused on everyday work, communication, knowledge production? Uh, does it make sense to have an archive of Wikipedia separate from Wikipedia, which seems to be archiving itself very well and producing you know, you know, versions of uh, 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 past uh, changes and, uh, and giving us access to it? Um, is it? Is it possible that some of the roles of our institutions that preserve cultural memory are going to be folded into uh, the current systems that... Um, allow us to communicate and produce knowledge. Maybe actually uh, I'll ask uh, Frank to start if he has something to to say to that since I called him out on uh, the discussion of Wikipedia. (laughs) Well, I I think particularly in in, in the the, the technical fields, computer science and and, uh, physical sciences, uh, references to to websites, blogs, uh, wikis are part and parcel of many of the, the Acknowledgements at the end of a, a journal article, so that there is this integration of, of this type of information into um, into scientific publication. In addition, if you look at the evolution of, of, of scientific publishing, particularly again in say chemistry, uh, what what you're finding is is that there's a greater participation uh, by the publishers in trying to find ways of including more uh, real-time types of information. And so you have these more dynamic documents which might include real-time visualizations of data which in the past would only be in tabular form, and now you can bring it up live and read the document as well as, as uh, uh, interact with, with the, say, a three-dimensional model. So uh, the sciences have always been, I think, at the forefront of this and, and, and in trying to integrate every new technology into the, the, uh, the scientific process and, and finally dissemination of information pipeline. Other comments? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think the question of whether, well, what you started with, whether these new platforms can archive themselves, I think you already made the point about these... Um, Startup initiatives, especially uh, when they're, uh, you know, commercial ones like Facebook, etc. I mean, it's always been the case that these these um, are not the places for archiving. Huh? I mean, archi- I, I think what what distinguishes or what what still um, signifies the role of or emphasizes the role of archives and also libraries and museums is that they they are the ones who have a different time frame mm. they take the long view and uh, and that's their task basically I think and um, 
But on the other hand, you have the problem of, of forcing, say, um, content of platforms into existing structures that do not fit, right? So that, that is, I think, uh, a difficult problem. On the one hand, you can solve that by rethinking the, the preservation and uh, selection and preservation procedures, uh, protocols within these institutions in, and try to think of more dynamic models for doing that. Um, on the other hand, you also have to think about where you do not have to do it. Right? If you can tr trust Wikipedia to archive itself, then why do you need to do it elsewhere as well? So um, this is just, you know, thoughts. I haven't uh, thought about this. Uh, I mean, it requires further research about or thinking about how stable uh, Wikipedia is. Yet I do, the one the one point additional point I want to make is that um, that that these well you you phrased the question also you know is there is there going to be a reason to distinguish between archives and museums and galleries for instance huh? and there I thought well although it's true that uh, from say a, a material or the technical perspective in a digital environment all objects look the same. Uh, the, the, they do belong to a context of production, distribution, collection, uh, exhibition. Mm -hmm. And I think these, these archives and museums contextualize objects that make them meaningful as cultural heritage. And um, these, they do so, uh, the, these institutions are related to certain discourses, mm -hmm. academic and critical ones for, about art, for instance. Uh, which, are, which is a totally different discourse from the discourse about film, uh, as I found. You know, there, there are two separate worlds. So film archives rarely talk to media art archives, for instance. And, um, and, but there's reasons for that, also related to the object that they, uh, that they collect and, and preserve. So I do see, still see a sort of reason for these different institutions to continue existing. So even if you don't have the uh, the different buildings, one the archive, uh, one the gallery or museum, um, you still have the uh, and one, for instance, uh, just a, a space in which there's a stack of of work. Um, the wall text is uh, something that distinguishes it, the context that, that people provide and uh, the way in which uh, they connect the work uh, to the rest of uh, uh, art and other history. Yeah, and also that an archive is is maybe more like a database, whereas the mm. museum context of digital objects is about curating, about taste-making, mm. about uh, distinguishing, you know, trying to find out what is interesting art, mm -hmm. uh, net art. Uh, to, to, and you could, there are, of course, debates about opening up this idea, this authoritative idea of curating, but I think that that's very justified to look mm -hmm. at these practices and also to, to open them up more for the for the for the artists involved and for the general audience that's interested in these uh, works. Uh, and you see that happening as well. But still, I think we will need uh, these arbiters of taste. We will want them. Uh, I mean, Steve Rosenbaum just published this book, Curation Nation, which is a sort of yeah pamphlet for or arguing for the role of curation on, on the Internet as a whole, for instance, in the field of, of news, etc. But that idea of... of still a ro having a role for arbiters of taste, I think, uh, I believe in that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree very much with the idea that, that uh, 
that there is a, a, both a blending of these activities that traditionally museums and archives have had, um, you know, where, where archives are doing much more to sort of put uh, their cultural heritage materials uh, out in the open and take on a, a bit of a museum flavor. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I do want to, to say that, you know, preservation and access, as uh, if we take these sort of broad views of what they are, are still uh, two, uh, although aligned, different kinds of domains and, and different kinds of activities, and they have different needs. Um, I mean, I, I think of, for example, you know, there, there, there's quite a lot of cultural heritage materials uh, that are under copyright or, or need to be preserved but not made open uh, and accessible for a variety of reasons. And there are projects that, that endeavor to, you know, create um, a lot of funded projects uh, uh, through CLEAR and other organizations uh, to uh, uh, create dark archives, um, uh, the locks program, lots of copies keep stuff safe, where uh, a lot of that is, is not open access, but it, it's certainly uh, put in different archives and repositories so that uh, it will be preserved over the long haul. So uh, in many ways, I think there's sort of this uh, uh, a double helix of, of, of preservation on the one hand and the needs of preservation um, and metadata crea creation and, and what have you, um, and uh, outreach or education on the other, where you create these sorts of, of uh, opportunities to share uh, and disseminate cultural heritage materials and make them available uh, to the broader public. Well, so I wanted to move on to the next question. Uh, speaking of cultural heritage, and this one may be uh, very specifically directed uh, toward our, our, our panelist who has digital humanities in his, in his title, but I, it is a question about how a field that a field of endeavor that has been using computation, uh, using uh, data analysis methods, specifically to look at cultural heritage and to look um, uh, into history and, it, and richly and humanistically examine um, uh, the past. Um, has maybe um, not connected with the contemporary uh, project of uh, looking at digital media and the way that computation and digital work um, affects our culture today. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if, we, if, if, if our focus uh, that has been productive on history and on cultural memory there um, can also connect to the project of digital media, the idea that um, uh, you know, we can look at the cultural life of uh, computing, the Internet, um, today, and uh, w what you see as a as a prospects for that. I mean, not just you, Jason, but uh, but clearly, I wanted to um, uh, take the occasion of your being on the panel to to ask about this aspect of cultural memory. This is this is the uh, the Tupac Biggie Smalls question. I think um, you know East Coast West Coast vibe of of new media versus digital humanities, as it were. Um, I, you know, I I think that. Um, from, from both my personal perspective and, and from the activities of, of my office, um, we take a very broad view of what constitutes digital humanities, and it certainly includes um, study of new, uh, newer forms of, of digital media. Uh, I, can, I can point to just a, a few quick projects uh, in, in line with this. Um, Lev Manovich uh, has a, a, has a cultural analytics uh, enterprise. He had a, received a startup grant, and also we had a, a short grant program with the Department of Energy using uh, high-performance computing. Uh, and so he uses uh, uh, advanced technologies to study things uh, like computer games as well as manga and magazine covers, changes of art over time. Um, and, and so forth on, on huge hyperwalls, and, and, and he does a lot of work, as you, as you probably all well know, with uh, new media in general. 
Um, Matt Kirschenbaum at the University of Maryland uh, approached sort of a similar question of, of, of what, what does the literary scholar do uh, with archives of the 21st century, where you used to walk in and you'd have, you know, uh, linear feet uh, of papers to, to, to sort of... Uh, go through as a scholar, and now you have linear feet uh, and a bunch of five-and-a-quarter floppies, two hard drives, an old Macintosh It doesn't really turn on anymore, and three laptops, one of which has a broken screen. So, like, what do you do in this context? And so he uh, had a small uh, startup grant to discuss this with a bunch of archivists who are interested in this at Emory, at the Ransom Center in Texas, uh, and at Maryland, um, looking at actually quite interesting array of, of um, uh, of writers. One was uh, Simon Rushdie, uh, whose papers are at Emory and, and whose papers include uh, a lot of these sort of um, computational uh, uh, things that I discussed, like the computers and so forth. Uh, Michael Joyce, who wrote uh, both traditional literature and hypertext uh, literature, whose papers are at the Ransom Center. Uh, and then the Dina Larson collection, which is housed at the University of Maryland, uh, and she is uh, an electronic literature writer. She, uh, and so how do you do you grapple with these issues across that kind of diversity of collection, which I think is really interesting. Um, so, you know, from, from at least my perspective, um, and I think generally in, in terms of the grants that we try to support, uh, we really do uh, take a broad view of what uh, digital humanities is along those lines. Just, just as, a, as a quick sort of um, addition to that, though, the challenge is uh, contextualizing new media uh, within sort of uh, questions, with questions, that are appropriate to the NEH, the National Endowment uh, for the humanities. Uh, a lot of the review focuses on humanity significance. And so uh, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a higher bar, but it, it's necessary in all sort of applications and discussions to, to show the long view of, of how new media it fits within um, uh, the humanities questions that we've been asking for quite some time. Um, but I, I think uh, maybe I'll, well, I, and one other thing, I think there's actually a, a, a confluence of method. Uh, which I think might be an interesting conversation to have here, which is to say, you know, distant reading, for example, something mm -hmm. like uh, Manovich does with, with cultural analytics, uh, and Franco Moretti will do with titles of, of novels in the 18th and 19th century and earlier. Um, you know, those sorts of methodologies, I think, can span uh, all of those kinds of mm -hmm. media objects. So I'll just leave it. So I, I wanted to actually um, open up maybe a discussion about one of the topics you um, you mentioned this idea of encountering the archive and uh, and seeing uh, the five linear feet of material alongside um, hard disk uh, or computers uh, some of which are broken uh, you know other sorts of uh, um, digital media work um, and uh, that's a it's a situation that uh, we don't think about a lot when it comes to the digital age and archiving we're thinking perhaps more often about Twitter, Facebook, Wikipedia, the New York Times on, on the web, and so on, but, um, but not as much about the juxtaposition of analog and digital materials. And so I wanted to um, invite some discussion of how it is that we'll uh, deal with uh, uh, you know, both, uh, both aspects of, of uh, the materials that we have to preserve, how we can deal with them jointly, um, are there uh, possibilities for you know, either existing institutions that deal with those um, standard materials to, uh, obviously in many cases they're, they're trying to expand and embrace digital material as well. Um, uh, can anything happen uh, the other way around? Um, 
what does the future look like for accessing uh, both of those sorts of materials? So, well, I think uh, what's well, actually more your field, but the, uh, cons- the, the conservation of uh, computer-based art is a nice example because mm-hmm. there you're faced with the problem that works were c- created on certain uh, platforms for certain platforms and making use of certain software that is quickly becoming obsolete. And, um, and then when you conserve these works or preserve them, uh, it, it often it becomes a case of emulation that you try to simulate the original functionality of the work and its appearance. Um, but for from a conservation perspective, that's that's problematic because you're basically creating a new mm-hmm. new work. Um, and and I I think it's interesting because there the question becomes uh, how important is the original context or the the original. Um, um, materials and, and, and technology with which a work is produced for its concept. So for some, I, I know that Nam Jung Paik, for instance, uh, in his TV Buddha, when the monitor broke, he said, oh, just go around the corner to the nearest shop and buy, buy any TV monitor you can find. But, but So the principle is, you know, you can replace it. But do we now want to replace it with a flat screen monitor? That would be an interesting question. I think in his spirit, he wouldn't have he wouldn't care so much. And what happened, of course, was that the original monitor, which was a lovely uh, white uh, round monitor, that, that it became a collector's item in itself. But, but now I'm digressing. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that, that you could also think about this, uh, the, the relevance of the original um, carrier and, and, and technology of production of this, of this archival material for 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 its content. Huh? So you could, and, and I think the most important thing is, again, to document this in the metadata. To, to if, you, if you have a writer's archive and it can, com, consists of all these different carriers, and that, that I think you would want to migrate the, the content to a different uh, carrier because otherwise it becomes inaccessible. But you could, I think you should, in a way, document the, whether he worked on a, on what type of computer platform uh, it was created. Uh, because it could matter to the researcher of that archive mm-hmm. later on. Yeah. But I think in terms of storing it and make, keeping it accessible, you will have to migrate. I mean, that's without a doubt. Mm-hmm. You're not going to you know, keep those uh, old uh, hard disks in the, in the archive. Just to add a couple of things to that. I mean, there, are, there has been some research over the past couple of years in dealing with traditional artifacts. Um, there's some re- research done about Ten years ago, it continues to be done by uh, uh, Mark Lavoie at Stanford University with the Digital Michelangelo Project, where they went to uh, the gal- uh, academia in, in, in Florence and digitally scanned to millimeter level uh, the entire statue of uh, Michelangelo's David. Um, you have people working in the cuneiform community have have set up uh, scanned uh, thousands of cuneiform tablets, and you have, so you have the cuneiform digital library initiative where people have put this information online. Uh, medieval manuscripts are, are coming online often. That this, uh, the British Library, uh, Oxford University, uh, St. Galen in, in uh, uh, Switzerland, all making these manuscripts available um, at high resolution. Uh, and there's some work that's been going on at, at uh, Kyoto University where uh, how do you deal with, again, all these, these cultural artifacts? And uh, one of the problems that the researchers are dealing with there is you have, say, 11,000 uh, historic screens, which are 12-panel 
screens, and, and there's no way that all these, these screens can be conserved. It's just a sure impossibility. So they're, they're using digital imaging methods to document these screens. And now we're talking about images uh, documentation, which might be 20 gigabytes to 200 gigabytes in size for per screen. So you're getting these fine details. That's another issue is where are you going to put all this information and how to easily make it accessible. But uh, the technology is finally in place where the people who are doing the archaeological and, and uh, type of work can finally get this information online for the scholars to look at. And, and so they don't have to travel to the to museums or to the archaeological sites. So that, I think it's a great advantage that, that digitization is, is occurring because it, it now means that even scholars can study and, you know, that, 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 that fine uh, stroke, either uh, whether it's a stroke of a, of a pen or, or um, the, the chisel on, uh, on the surface of a marble uh, without having to, to get on the ladder in the, in the academia in, in Florence and stand up and look at uh, Michelangelo's nose. Well, it's interesting because we have, from Jason's discussion, the sort of analog up, the archive that has a bunch of papers, ads, some computers and a hard disk and so on, and then the digital down, you know, idea of preserving things that, well, since we've got all this digital material, we can also scan in the cuneiform tablets and you know, we, can, we can get the rest of the stuff. And, uh, and the, the idea of, of um, art preservation particularly, I mean, it, it's computer art uh, uh, has all of the problems that, that you mentioned, Julia, but also, I mean, I was just out at the De Cordova where they had this drawing with code exhibit. It's all work on paper actually, except for uh, one video by Stan Vanderbeek. But everything else is there, and that, that's, that's the artwork. Um, it's very early, you know, um, uh, algorist computer art. Um, so they have uh, materials, too, and in fact, and that's what's valued uh, at, that, at that phase of, um, uh, uh, of the development of, of art for the computer. I ask, you know, where's, you know, where are the programs, where are the punch cards that this is generated from? You know, the curator said, oh. I don't know. I guess they threw them away. Uh, you know, so, so the types of things that people choose to preserve or not, you know, um, vary a great deal with these with these sorts of perspectives. And uh, I'm hopeful that there'll be some meeting point also between analog and digital um, uh, perspectives on digitization for access and for and for you know uh, preservation of image and um, accumulation of materials. But you know. We don't know how to read the hard disk. Or, you know. Well, it, it gets back to Julia's point, and yeah. so you have some you know, born digital artwork, which might be a computer program, and, and so you want to display it 500 years in the future or a thousand years in the future, and 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 so as she was saying, is that it, it maybe you're not you can't worry about the the source code. You might have to worry about what the artist's intent was, what the original design was, how what what it was like when it was installed in the environment and then maybe reconstitute it in the future. And, and at least they would adhere to the artist's you know, original thoughts. So it's a recreation. And of course, that's not conservation, but, mm -hmm. but that might be what you have to worry about for something in a deep time. Because yeah. what, are you, what are you gonna have? You can't preserve every little thing. You might be able to preserve the essence of what that work was or the essence of what the, how the artist performed and then recreate it to give that, give that, that sense. And you have to accept also change. To, to, yeah. to, so so in, in this field, um, a, a comparison is made with the performing arts to, to think of these works as, say, performances of a play or, or mm -hmm. uh, you know, where there is some kind of a script 
that so and what belongs to the script varies per work of course I mean in one case it can be the hardware but in the other case it might just be the concept huh? yeah. the idea and, um, and and that and that changes our perspective on on what conservation could be and also on the roles of the mm-hmm. curator and the conservator as well huh? becoming more uh, I mean it it shows more how they are also interpreters like a dramaturg mm-hmm. for a play you know that you that that each performance is different because there is a different interpretation of the play mm-hmm. and uh, that that I'm not saying that that we could one on one copy that to to a cultural heritage conservation mm-hmm. context but it's inspiring to to think about the implications and again it exposes for me also dimensions of curatorial work and conservation work that were have always been part and parcel of the profession mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think these are very important issues that uh, we're now confronting seriously. You know, as as people interested in conserving cultural memory, um, and I think it's it's a step beyond you know an attitude of sort of like, oh, that's emulation. You know, you're not using a real Commodore 64. I'm not going to look at that. You know, um, or uh, uh, this. You know, that's a migrated program. This isn't. You know, this is or this is an image. It's not the. It's not the material artifact. But rather recognizing what it is that those things afford to us, and that some things which could not otherwise you know, be maintained and be accessible to us in the future um, are in certain ways and making those decisions intelligently, making those selections intelligently. Mm-hmm. So, Can I raise sure, one sure. more, one thing that just came to my mind, the importance of education about these things because, mm-hmm. again, we're just, we're, we're speaking to each other, but how important is it that you that when you exhibit and uh, emulate a work that you educate the public that it was made on a different computer um, and and so so do you i mean that's the struggle that that uh, museum people have do we yes. put on the label that it was originally made for a commodore uh, 64 or and um, i i think that's yeah. a that's a very that's still open question very yeah. important I mean, there's not even one Commodore 64. There was a ROM revision in 1983. And so, I mean, you can actually pick the hardware, you know, which machine you want to use. So, and that's the case with many. I mean, it's not as if, you know, you're going to pick the original computer on which something was written. There are going to be different, um, you know, particular things about the system, which may or may not have an effect on speed, performance. So... The emulator is a software computer. It's just another addition, you know. And it could be bad. It could be good. But, you know, there it is. Now let's think about how to use an appropriate one, how to display it appropriately. So um, I I want us to move very soon to taking some of your questions and comments uh, in the audience. But just to transition to that, I wanted to ask to see if there's some brief comments. One of the things that came up in the first plenary is sort of considering the issues surrounding media and transition that we're looking at at this conference in the context of what we do, the participants in this, con- in this conference, you know, in uh, often academic institutions, uh, the other places that we work uh, and that we create media within. Um, and so I wanted to ask, specifically with relationship to this issue of archiving and cultural memory, um, do you have suggestions or thoughts, uh, things to direct people to uh, related to one's own um, self-archiving, um, contribution of materials to an archive, to the preservation of research work, or there are people who are on library committees and work you know, at their universities and are engaged with the way that, uh, that the institutions that they're part of uh, preserve their cultural memories. Um, any qu- uh, quick thoughts that we can 
offer as, as we invite people to, to line up and, um, and ask us questions. Well, I'll give it a shot. Right. I, I think one of the things is, is education again, and it gets back to educating people who are producers of things. And, and I think one of, the, one of the areas I'm working in is, is trying to find ways of, of helping in, in the preservation of digital artists to, is to get, engage artists in, in understanding that if you're producing a digital work, that you are, you, if you want it to be around for, for the next 500 years, you're you're going to have to take method, uh, take an approach where you, you look at it in an archival way. Now, you know, if you think of the, the Renaissance painters and medieval painters, they they worked in, in such a way that preserved their work. Their work is still around today with the help of some conservation. It'll be around for another 500 years. And I think people who are working today, uh, whether you're producing uh, work in digital humanities or arts, that start to think about what, how they put their put their work together and where they put it and um, and what about the future it's going to be? So it's an educational process. And I think that's kind of open at this point to what what we can do and how we educate these people. But I think it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, Frank, this is something that at, working with the Electronic Literature Organization, you know, Noah Ward-Prune and I wrote a pamphlet, Acid-Free Bits, which is uh, suggestions for how authors can make their work longer lasting. If that's something they value, they may have a performance attitude toward the work. They may not be concerned with this, but thinking about issues of open source versus proprietary software, text-based, uh, legible uh, uh, standard formats versus uh, data formats that are binary uh, and right. proprietary. You know, these, these are things that, uh, that we discussed. It, it's, it's, uh, it was, you know, it was uh, something of a contentious uh, thing to come up with recommendations about this, actually. You might not imagine it, but, you know, um, uh, and, and, to, and to, you know, uh, lay out what some of the you know, possible consequences were for making these uh, tool and platform sorts of decisions. Um, but hopefully it was a step there. And, um, and, I, and that was very specific to a particular area of practice of electronic literature, but in the digital arts and um, in other types of creative computing. Um, uh, I think it's a, it's a, a very important issue, um, and it's not always something that's valued in, you know, on the forums where people exchange flash games or, you know, in other types of uh, a popular uh, or high cultural contexts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the, the value of Acid Free Bits, one of, the, one of the really nice things that came out of that is the emphasis that insta we should take instability of platforms as a given, you know, and, and that, in fact, you know, we should expect in making decisions about platforms um, to, to be critical in the same way that we're critical about those sorts of cultural heritage materials that we uh, examine as part of our practice, that we should do so with the tools that we use on a, on a, daily, on a daily basis. Um, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's unlikely that we'll ever turn to say that, you know, um, because it's, say, commercial, for example, and, and so it's not open source, uh, that, that we should eschew uh, uh, it exactly. Uh, but I do think that more and more we have to look at, at our data and, and how our data is constrained and contained and, and whether or not mm -hmm. we can extract that data from commercial uh, products and entities in order to use it uh, and preserve it for our own uh, research practices. Um, what, one of the things that I, I do think is that um, as, as humanists, or at least from, from my background as a, as a, a humanist and, and, and librarians and uh, museum uh, folks, that we really have an opportunity, I think, to impact uh, industry 
Um, you know, you, you sort of opened this talking about whether or not Facebook had uh, an archivist, you know, and so I think uh, there are real opportunities uh, for the kind of work that we discuss um, to have an impact in, in government and, and in industry. I, I do remember uh, there, there was an ELO conference at the University of Maryland, I think, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, and one of the uh, keynotes at the time was the, the chief archivist of the United States, of the archives. Uh, and he had uh, read Acid Free Brits recent, Bits recently and said, well, gosh, this is exactly what we're de- grappling with sort of on a federal level because man- the mandate of the archives is to capture uh, every record, and record is broadly defined, um, of, of U- United States government activity, you know, and just think about the sort of overwhelming nature of that assignment, you know. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, connections that we can make uh, with those entities. And also, um, more of a question or, or a point for further, further reflection and research, maybe, is uh, the, the instability of our objects of research. Because the case I'm presenting tomorrow is a uh, video labeling game that is now offline. So, you know, the, 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 and, and any, any kind of uh, initiative working with digital data uh, uh, online, I mean, how... how so the stability of our own research objects, and, and if you include them in, in these innovative ways in, in your publications, huh, that like to have the real time, uh, I mean, in, in, in 100 years' time, what, what will that link mean? So I think that that's a very interesting question that now with these open source, uh, 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 open access uh, publications also becomes very relevant. This, this digital publishing allows for a lot of interesting things, but how do we deal with the instability of our object of research? Yeah, I mean, the, an extreme case of that, my collaborator Noah Ward of Prynne did a piece called The Impermanence Agent with, with some others that um, is done in 1996 and uh, uh, involved um, uh, looking uh, around on the web in a sort of augmented interface. Um, how to preserve that piece? Well, it turns out that actually to really be able to experience it, uh, you need uh, the whole web, yeah. From uh, from 1996 yeah, because yeah. things are uh, things are different now, yeah. um, and we see smaller scale versions of that in you know in the rich use of uh, APIs uh, sites and you know other available resources that are here today. Um, I mean that's exhilarating, helpful, but uh, it uh, also is a, a recipe for a very short term project because any one of those links that break if they're being used significantly means that's it for the project. All right, so let's, um, on that happy note, let's, uh, <laughs> let's see if there's uh, some questions. William. So just to pick up on that, because I think that goes back to the you know, two-round earlier comments about, in a certain sense, rethinking the archive as a site of performance, that, that as opposed to sort of holding tight to the artifact, uh, more, more things in the direction of emulation or whatever. And... Um, I think that's one way to sort of get at that dilemma. It, it requires a sort of epistemological shift in how we how we think about the archive. So I want to just try to link that to the very one of the very opening comments, Frank, that you made about um, Encyclopedia Britannica versus Wikipedia, and and you argued that they're both crowdsourced, and indeed I, I would I would agree with that. But there are some really interesting differences as well, and one has to do with attribution. Encyclopedia Britannica is at, you know we can attribute the correctness or falsity of a piece to a particular individual. There's a kind of built-in ad hominem argument there, someone who's credible and probably from a university, versus Wikipedia where it's a bit more dynamic and it's more uh, anonymized. 
fragments of people's comments, you know, if it's a heavily worked uh, entry, it's fragments of different people's ideas are, are sort of combined. And uh, so it's not just a matter of crowdsourcing. I think, I think the, matter, the issue of authorship is really crucial. Attribution is crucial. Um, but more interesting than that, which is maybe kind of an institutional level of discourse, Wikipedia turns on, is driven through a kind of algorithmic layer. So instead of just a subject writing about an object, there's now a lot of subjects mm. writing about an object, but it's all kind of moving through a series of algorithms. And I don't mean to talk about algorithm as false consciousness or something that distorts, but it is a very interesting kind of new dimension, a new, a new layer that, we, that, that helps to aggregate, filter, shape. And I, I want to go back to something to make the third link here, to what Yulia said about, you know, it's really important that we track changes. I think it's also really important that we hold those algorithms, that we capture those somehow, because those then can become part of this notion of a performative archive yeah. uh, if we keep that layer as well. Mm -hmm. so, so an appeal there, and, any, and, and obviously any thoughts you guys have on the, yeah. how realistic a, <laughs> a project that is. Can I, can I just respond to the latter point? I think... Uh, uh, you're, I totally agree with you on the, on the relevance of keeping that, and it's an interesting question of how the the functionality or the function of this algorithm relates to um, selection and classification and description processes or any kind of mediating processes in, say, uh, offline archives. Um, uh, but but there again, that that also, how much do we know about? how the knowledge production in traditional archives is mediated. Uh, they, they also, in a broadcasting archive, you also get data from automatically generated data, the, the time of a recording of, 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 an, of, of raw footage, for instance, etc. So, um, so again, I totally agree, but uh, we should do it in both domains in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's oh. a... Interesting question because you're, you're talking about number of levels of indirection between the original data and you actually seeing something on the screen, or and um, at least in a printed book, it, you, what you see is what you get, but you not least necessarily know where that information is coming from, and and it's something that, that of course is treated in the sciences where you, you do an experiment and uh, you have a number and you have a series of models which are between the experiment you use so you get the final and final number out, but you know what those transformations are. Uh, they're, they're published, they're argued about, uh, they're vetted, and then you could, and so you know what those mathematical formulas were, but you don't have any idea with, with this, this uh, humanistic information. There's nothing there at all to tell you what kind of transformations occurred and whether they were good transformations or bad transformations and how that those clustered together. So it's a very interesting problem. Yeah. Um, thank you for your, can everyone hear me? Okay. Thank you for your presentation. Um, you've spoken very eloquently about the need for uh, archives and preservation. Um, but I was wondering whether you could maybe speak a little bit more about cultural memory per se and maybe define it a little bit more and theorize it a little bit more because I think that was a little bit neglected in the presentations. And specifically, my question is about um, the difference between information and knowledge. So let's say that we could have all of the information ever produced, archived, properly stored, and accessible. 
but I think there's still a problem of devaluation of cultural memory. And I think it's kind of telling that in recent years there's an expression, that's history that's being used derisively as a put-down. So it seems that there's been a kind of neglect of cultural memory per se. So what kind of incentive is there for average people to actually become acquainted with this information that is being archived and stored? Um, so I guess I'm asking about the value of cultural memory at the cultural level. I think to start with your question about information and knowledge, for me, knowledge is contextualized information. Uh, There's a white paper on Europeana, the European Digital Library, where that is all uh, theorized. Um, And I think also, when does information become part of or informs cultural memory? I think it's in the use made of it. So... Um, so, so it requires an activation. It needs to be. I mean, memory is 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 related to to performance, right? To to acts and actions. So, uh, and and yeah, to say what the value is of cultural memory, I'm more interested in the question of how these new platforms or new ways of engaging with the past that they allow for how how that changes. Uh, our, our cultures of remembering so our, and our practices of remembering. I think that's, that's more the question. So not whether it's valued more or less, because I think memory is highly valued. Uh, but, but, I mean, it occurs. Um, there are memory practices everywhere. So. But uh, how, these, how memory is transformed in this, in, in this digital realm, that's, that's an interesting question. That's related maybe to the issue of forgetting that you've uh, put Forgot to uh, uh, ask about it. To to sort of steal from Julia's earlier earlier comment, I I think cultural memory is itself an act of of perpetual rewriting. Um, And so uh, as, you know, in terms of knowledge and information, one of the things that I'm most concerned about is, is not, you know, a lot of times we capture information relevant to the questions we want to ask now uh, and, and the kinds of questions we have about cultural memory uh, that we think are relevant now. But uh, one of the challenges, I think, is, is learning how to capture the data and information for the questions that we don't even know to ask. Um, and I think uh, that that's going to be a really interesting uh, project over the next several years because as we move toward uh, more large-scale data mining techniques as we move towards methodologies uh, that can ask questions at scale, um, I, I think it will impact and rewrite how we think about cultural memory. Yeah. I'd like to, to say a couple of things. One of the I mean, if you look at, at, at uh, the value, I mean, if, if the curators of archives and museums are the people who make decisions on what's, what's saved and what's not saved, then, of course, they, you have this certain set of, set of biases in, in their perception of what should be saved and what shouldn't. And, uh, and also in terms of the time scale, which many of these institutions work, if you compare the Metropolitan Museum in New York to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, uh, the Metropolitan Museum is much more deliberative about what it acquires. So, for example, it took almost 20 years for the Metropolitan Museum to acquire its first video work. Uh, in the meantime, the, the Museum of Modern Art is already collecting digital art. Uh, so there, there's a different, completely different approach as to what they're collecting. And, of course, if you look at the history of collections, for example, if you go to the, Whitney's, uh, uh, the Whitney Museum uh, 
right now this installation of what the original uh, artwork was that, that, that was there when the founding of the museum. And you look at this work and you say, hmm, that's why it was in the closet for the past 60 years, because they collected the work in such a way, and they had certain ideas about what they were collecting, and then you were probably not going to show it today. But maybe 300 years in the future, some bright curator would say, that was really wonderful stuff. So let's take it out of the closet and recontextualize it and use it. So it gets back to, do you try to save everything, or do you, you just rely on the curators to, and their best choices? But it's also, of course, there's also development of people building their own archives. Huh? And, and um, so outside of the institution, so for me, archiving is also a process that extends beyond the institutions and into other, other domains and also the, the private domain. And this, this, I think that's still an open question. What does that, how does that impact the way we remember our own past and, and you know, the just very tentative ideas about, about how this availability of all this, this information sort of brings the past more into the present. Huh? I think that's the current take on, on how it affects uh, the way we think about memory. Hi, uh, Richard Rogers, University of Amsterdam. When you mentioned the, about the that Facebook doesn't have a corporate archivist that we know of uh, yet, it occurred to me that a number of my students were interested in like the history of privacy online and, and how it how it evolved over time. Why it, why it was that we became interested in exposing ourselves more and more. And so the idea was, okay, well, let's go and, let's go and look at the history of uh, Facebook. So, and normally when we think about archiving Facebook, we think about, well, there's a lot of personal information online. Um, um, it's a walled garden. Um, yeah, perhaps, there are only, perhaps there's a minimal part of Facebook that should be archived instead of thinking about archiving at all. So what would the minimal part be? Well, to me, the minimal part would be the, the home page, the FAQs, um, the sort of areas on the site that talks about the policies, you know, things like this. So the first couple of years we were doing this and watching the changes on Facebook to their privacy settings and the default settings and things, it was all available in the Internet Archive until suddenly it was gone um, because Facebook put up a robot uh, uh, exclusion on their site, and the Internet Archive now, or now, it's been going on for quite some time because it faced all sorts of challenges, uh, largely logistical ones, of, of dealing with all the requests people had sending in to the Internet Archive saying, please take down this and please take down that. They couldn't. There was such a backlog, they couldn't do it any longer, so they, they, they made a sweeping policy change saying that if you put a robot's exclusion uh, uh, tag on your, on, your, uh, uh, on your site, then your archived website in its entirety will be taken out of the Internet Archive. Um, so this is, this is, this is uh, one point. So dealing, what happens, what, dealing with the requests. So, so, so what happens to archiving when you, have to, when you have to archive something so massive and deal with all these requests? The second thing is that occurred to me when, when listening about website archiving is, is um, to save it, you have to break it. And I think it's, this is kind of increasingly more and more well-known. Um, so initially it was like some of the images weren't in. But now um, all, of the, all of the various dynamic elements, whether they're banner ads or cascading, 
or um, ads like AdWords or if they're social plugins. Um, you know, I mean, there's some quite some percentage of the real estate of a website um, which is which is not authored um, at the original host. So. So, um, so, the, so when you save it, I mean, you sort of you break quite a lot of it, um, and so I don't know if you have any kind of radical proposals of, uh, you know, permanent hosting or whatever, you know, to sort of deal with the, 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 the very real phenomenon of uh, of breaking breaking websites uh, when you when you save them. Well, I think uh, for the for the last. Question: I don't, I don't have the technical knowledge to to think about that, but f f f the principle for me would be that you would want to keep it in its functionality, and if you can't, then you're happy that you at least have something that that represents or refers to the original, right? Some some form of documentation. If you see it more as a form of documentation or a representation of the original thing, then that's better to have that than to have nothing. But your question about Facebook, I thought it was interesting because there you start from the assumption that you have to save the functionality of the platform. But um, I, I saw a online, uh, a, a curated exhibition on Facebook. So what about those things? You lose, you lose sight of, say, cultural events or, or uh, yeah, events maybe that that. I mean, if you if you solely f focus on the functionality, you might lose some objects. They they will be out of sight. What I meant was was um, there's two parts of well, there's three. Or I don't know how many parts actually. There's <laughs> loads of parts, but but there's there's the there's the basic pages that's explaining what Facebook is. I, I don't know. If that, mm -hmm. I wouldn't call that the functionality. That's just the. The, about us, the FAQs, the you know, mm -hmm. what is Facebook and how that changes over time, mm -hmm. versus then there are personal pages. Of course, there are group pages, you know. There's, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, not the functionality. Maybe the policy pages. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt, Matt Kirschenbaum has this nice uh, sort of riff on software studies where he talks about it's not just capturing the events and the algorithms and the procedures, but it's also the white papers and the business plans and, and the sort of meeting notes and that all, all those sorts of artifacts of cultural production that come out of the idea of producing uh, a, a company or a program or a software package, as it, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that plays in, into sort of w what you're discussing, is that, it, in fact, it's, it's quite challenging to capture all of those things. Uh, there are some uh, – there's a, a nice archive um, at the University of Maryland Business School I think that's attempting to do some of that work. Um, but, you know, just capturing event in general, I think, is one of the challenges of the digital age. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, you brought up the sort of website as, as it continually breaks more and more. You know, it, it leads one to wonder if that's because uh, that reflects in some way, you know, the change of web over time towards from, from static sort of where, where, where blink tag was our highest degree of interactivity, as it were, you know, to sort of a more dynamic, that was supposed to be funny, um, uh, uh, to, to sort of a dy more dynamic, robust, uh, you know, so web infrastructure. Um, and and I, I don't think that there's any easy way to, to say, you know, this is how we capture it. Um, you know, there, there are fascinating projects out there that try to capture just immediate moments of change over time, you know, like the September 11th archive, yeah. you know, that just try, tries to, to measure just a short span of what, how the web 
developed uh, over that uh, those few days. So, well, uh, I, I think there's some issues with that actually. The first of which is that uh, the business meeting notes and white papers we are exactly the things that we already have processes and procedures for for storing and for preserving. I mean, uh, that's what a, carp, a corporate archivist and others. You know, I mean, that, that that's that's established. So, although they have their significance, we don't need to do special work. Um, to discover new methods of preserving them. But also, they actually, you know, I mean, if you wanted to know, if you want to know how, how a bank works, you want to know how Citibank works, like what interest rates do they give to people and what circumstances and so on, you could take all those meeting notes and all, all these white papers and other documents, and it would be really of no value compared to their computer programs that actually give people different interest rates because that is their business model. That It is embodied in the software. The way Facebook works is not... In white papers, it's in Facebook. It's in the. It's on the website. It's on that system. And you, what you can recover from a working website would be not only an image of the page as it appeared in a contemporary browser at a particular moment, but various things about how the entire business and the entire system worked. So I, it's. I think it's extremely valuable. This is this is a, a, a serious problem. I think it's extremely valuable um, in in. Cases where there, it's of particular significance to cultural memory. I mean, we want to know, like, if you're just screen scraping whitehouse.gov, you don't, you know, you're not actually keeping a record of, of what's underneath that site and how it's built. That's not adequate for, you know, a national archive right. of I, how the United States operates. We we want we want that material. I, think. I, I, w- I would say it's a both and and not an either or. Uh, and so I think the challenge really is actually uh, linking those materials together. So, yeah, a bank uh, program at any one moment in time can show you the interest rate, uh, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the policies and procedures that are driving those decisions. It's actually it, the combination But it, of it is the policies and procedures. When uh, corporate in, IT in, in action, a specialist comes in to actually change the system, the way they look to see how the bank operates is at the software. <laughs> That's actually what... That's what tells you. I mean, that is the system. That, and if, if, they have, if there's a memo that contradicts it, then effectively for all the people who apply for loans or whatever else, the memo's wrong and the software's right. But that, that's the end point of a decision as opposed – and I'm kind of interested in the longer history of this. Yeah, no, no, I agree. That system got put in place for a certain reason as well. I, I, don't, I don't mean it's of no significance, but the functioning of it is, I think, very significant. Uh, absolutely. So, Albert. No, hi. So I'm speaking more uh, as a practitioner rather than a researcher, but I'm also interested in the subject. And uh, I would like to provoke a little discussion here uh, since um, it occurred to me just practicing, being, uh, having my own archive and such, such things that um, uh, the actual archival selection can be done proactively, potentially, rather than re- retroactively, and there's all sorts of things that maybe hasn't been addressed so much uh, in this discussion today, uh, such as, uh, yeah, that maybe in, I don't know, archivists and curators could be potentially obsolete in the future if uh, practitioner, artist, creator can um, sort of uh, embed certain constraints and selection processes within their work that uh, in the end uh, already give some kind of thorough archival piece like I don't know I just want to provoke you a little bit and if you want I can just mention that 
I've started in 2004 a project that is supposed to go on to 2040 where I, for instance, uh, photograph every object I use with my right hand and keep track of all sorts of things. I have 18 different things I'm keeping track of. And, and then I uh, see that with time, I'm also museum presentation and everything comes to place naturally and I don't see that probably in 2040, 2050, 2100, whatever, there, there, there's a need of an archivist or a curator to go over the material since there's already some kind of a syntax and there's already some kind of a thing that holds it together. So just your comment on that. The, my question is, who is taking the long view? Because you may take your own long view of the, maybe the rest of your life, but there's going to be a point. So I th that's, that's the point I made before. I think that that task, I don't care whether it's an archive or a library in, or a museum in the current sense that we know them that does this, that performs this task, but it needs, I don't believe, I mean, maybe you have a special interest in that, but I also know a lot of artists and filmmakers who really don't care. Once they finish one thing, they move on to the next, and that work is out of their system, and they literally say, I, I don't care how you exhibit it. It's your thing now. I don't, it's no longer. So, and of course, it's very different per, per creator, but uh, I do think that there will be more different platforms for both curating and, and preserving works. Huh? So more... Uh, like, like I, I know of it, of the Dutch Film Museum, who has this platform, uh, online platform for um, experimental film called Instant Cinema, that is curated basically by filmmakers themselves by invitation. Well, and my point here is probably that technology in itself allows this potential. The more we, I mean, probably to the extreme that the management of the art doing or whatever can be done proactively more and more rather than. It reminds me of that form about your response to like how to stop spam. Like you have proposed a technical solution to archiving. <laughs> this will not work because. And I mean, it's for those. Uh, yeah, I mean. I, I do think that there are artists who take a longer view, such as those doing 36-year art projects, um, and that uh, there, are, there are formulations of uh, artwork that connect very strongly to the archive and the types of things that are represented there. Um, but even then, there's longer views that can be taken and, uh, and that are on an institutional rather than a human life scale. And... Um, and there are people who, are, who aren't as concerned with systematically uh, sorting, tagging, uh, associating into a database, I think, their work. Um, so part of that, I think that's a case in the spectrum where people will be working in those spaces that connect archiving and art, but I don't think that, that it'll take over uh, for all of art practice. Let's see if we can... Um, get the other two questions before we run out of time. Um, I was very interested in a, um, a situation where after um, a tornado that swore through the center of the country, a woman went out in her yard and found a sonogram. 
And she thought, oh, it must be something that would really interest someone. And so she created a Facebook page and named it after the date of the storm and mounted an image of the sonogram to try to match it up with the person who had originally owned it. And I believe that I just checked this 4,000 items now that have been loaded by various images of, by various people who have the original objects. And I think about 1,000 of those objects have been reunited with their original owners. And I was thinking this is a really wonderful example of a very temporary archive possibly, although someone might use that archive to study how objects flew from their original areas. There are all types of possibilities with that just one archive. But on the other hand, it's a very temporary archive and it's a crowdsourced archive. But that raises the important question of, I, I think we also have the problem that we can now preserve so much that we think, oh, and there's yet so much more to preserve. So, so the question of where we dare to stop and say some things have a life and for instance, one solution, if, if you think that life deserves uh, attention, deserves a long view in itself, then you can, then you can document it, right? There are performances that, in art, for instance, that, that only exist now as documentation. I mean, how that is not a bad thing. So there are other ways of, of, of tracing or mapping events and past things that maybe don't need to be you know, archived in a traditional sense. What I, what, I, what I do love about the idea is this, this notion of an ad hoc sort of event-based archive or repository that erupts out of a need. Um, and you know, one of the problems in digital humanities is that we tend to create projects, but we're not so good at stopping them, uh, you know, which is uh, not fantastic in terms of funding prospects, right? Because you, know, you can only expand but so much before you hit a wall. And so what's really fantastic is this notion that there's this event, there's this, you know, this occurrence of this, this finding, um, uh, a re response that is uh, grassroots uh, and I'm sure will last as long as it needs to last. Um, and then uh, it's okay to move on, right? It, it served a particular purpose. And I, I think that's actually uh, not a bad model uh, for some kinds of projects. Uh, there's a lot of value in that. All right, Alex, last question. Uh, so my question is about the ethics of archiving and APIs. Um, so putting aside the fact that archiving copyrighted stuff online is kind of its own issue. Uh, I'm wondering your opinions of archiving online ephemera, um, specifically within relation to their terms of service. So a lot of uh, things such as, I believe, Wikipedia and uh, things like 4chan and other uh, online services say, do not scrape our website. Um, however, some of them do allow APIs to access and uh, possibly archive some of their content. Um, so if you wanted to do an initiative to do personal archiving and not put uh, the job in the hands of the people who control the platform, um, what are the ethics that we're talking about there? Well, th this actually relates to Richard's question about robots exclusion. Um, and the, the solution that I thought of was you could hire people on Mechanical Turk to uh, save the pages for you. No one, no one thinks that's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it would, it would, it's not a robot. You paid somebody to do mm -hmm. it. It would be fine, right? So um, I don't know. See if 
I don't think you can work that into your NEH grant. Jason's not looking very uh, very happy. No, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. We, we just had a, a, a funded workshop on APIs uh, also, I think, at the University of Maryland uh, where they brought together developers not only from digital humanities projects who wanted to learn more about how to use APIs in their own cultural heritage repositories, but they, I think, had speakers from Google, Yahoo, um, and, and, and several other industry uh, uh, players uh, to talk about this very issue of, of sort of interoperability, um, I don't know that I have a lot to say uh, uh, personally about the, the, the ethics. Um, you know, of course, I follow as a good government employee all terms of service um, laid out before me. Um, but uh, but I, I do think that APIs present uh, a, a wonderful opportunity to make a lot of data available um, uh, for uh, data mining work of, of sort of of interest. I mean, you know, like Google, uh, I think, is, is playing around giving some access to some scholars, uh, API access, so that they can data mine specific collections within the Google Books corpus. Um, you know, stuff like that, uh, I, I think, creates an opportunity to grapple with uh, other sort of ethical dilemmas like copyright that would otherwise prevent us from being able to do some of the work as humanists that we might want to do. Anything else? Any closing remarks? Uh, we'll, we'll release you to the coffee. Thanks very much. Please thank our speakers once again. Thank you. Thank you.